Hello and welcome to Walkley Talks. I'm Claire Fletcher from the Walkley Foundation for Journalism. Every few weeks we share discussions about the craft and importance of journalism in Australia and the world, often recorded at our events. Today's podcast features some of Australia's leading journalists in the digital space. They each approach their work in quite different ways, but they're all innovating through the way they use technology and digital platforms to engage audiences in journalistic stories. From a very simple sketch on Twitter that made the same-sex marriage plebiscite kind of make sense, to a very visual Instagram project that combined illustration and photojournalism for an intimate insight into a refugee's new life in Australia, and a deeply researched interactive database on Indigenous deaths in custody. You're about to hear from the best. It's very exciting for me tonight to introduce our panel, three very talented Walkley Award-winning and nominated storytellers. They're going to share with you their experiences across a really diverse range of projects and mediums. So I'm going to introduce Kylie first. Kylie Bolton is a Walkley Award-winning journalist and producer and is currently the commissioning editor of online documentaries for SBS. Uh, as well as directing award-winning independent documentaries for TV, interactive projects that she's commissioned or produced at the network, globally recognised as leading examples of innovation and picked up more than 50 major awards and nominations, which is amazing. These projects innovate in both storytelling and technology and speak to the SBS Charter of Social Inclusion and Cultural and Linguistic Diversity. On the far left, we have Lane Sainty, who's a journalist with BuzzFeed News. She's been at BuzzFeed for four years and one of the organisation's first hires in Australia, which is pretty impressive. Lane was taking on the round initially of LGBT rights and politics for BuzzFeed and extensively covered the same-sex marriage postal survey in 2017, which we'll be talking about in detail tonight. She's now on the courts round and covered a large range of cases with a focus on defamation and proceedings involving critically ill child refugees on Nauru. Lane was previously an editor at Sydney University's student newspaper, Oni Swar. And here on my left is Lorena Allen, who has worked in the media for 30 years, Walkley Award-winning investigative journalist and editor for both the ABC and the BBC, and is currently the Guardian Australia's Indigenous Affairs editor. She's presented and produced many ABC radio programmes, including Away, Background Briefing and Hindsight and was Triple J's first Indigenous newsreader, so we'll be expecting some good radio voice tonight. (laughs) She's also worked in print, writing for a range of history and social justice publications and worked on bringing them home inquiry into the separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families. So please join me again in welcoming the panel. Kylie, if I can start with you, Kylie. So you're obviously a Walkley winner. You've received multiple nominations for a range of work, but I'd like to ask you specifically about the She Called Me Red, which is fascinating. So you used Instagram to tell this particular story. So I'm intrigued to know what it was like creating a documentary on that platform and and what made you choose it over other platforms. Thanks everyone for coming. It's really lovely to be here. Um, And I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my respects to elders past and present and acknowledge all Indigenous people in the room. So yeah, she called me Red. So look, I'm at SBS and we have a lot of different divisions working and I'm part of a commissioned content team. So I work alongside the TV documentary 
guys and we share sort of topics and conversations so that team were looking at go back live at the time they were looking to produce that project and that's a topic about you know the contemporary refugee crisis and so I was also looking at something that's under our charter everything we do as part of the commission content team works to the SBS charter which I see as something it's like a mission <laughs> I don't I don't see it as a anything closed at all we also work closely with NITV so in this particular project one of the communities that go back we're looking at were the Rohingya and that was a community that I've been interested in for some time and so we started to explore that community we worked with a journalist in Melbourne called Michael Green who did a fantastic podcast called The Messenger a couple of years ago and Michael worked with an artist called Tia Cass and so we started to go to this cafe in Springvale a Rohingya cafe and they met a number of people and we did a piece called Faces of the Rohingya Tia got nominated for Walkley for his artwork for that as well and we started to meet people, talk to them, hear their stories. And through that process, we found Eunice. And Eunice is the protagonist of She Called Me Red. And Eunice was sort of everything we were looking for in a particular protagonist. We were looking to tell a story through someone, to work, looking to work with someone. He had family at the Tankali refugee camp. He came himself as a refugee. He was really open to talking to us. And the thing that I'd noticed, of course, and everyone must have noticed it too with the contemporary refugee crisis, is the way it's changed through social media. And at the time, people were tweeting from Manus a lot. It was really interesting how we were having direct communication with people. And I'm sort of, that led me to think, I want to do this on social media as a project. Then we were looking into the ways that they were communicating, the Rohingya were communicating there, often through IM, like it's not necessarily Instagram. But when I went to the cafe, in Springvale in Melbourne and I saw that it was like, I don't know if anyone remembers MIA, the first the first album cover, but it looked like that. You know, it was really entrepreneurial, really colourful, you know, ground up building something from the beginning and it just was so visual. And I said, this has to be on Instagram. I could just, and I'd just done a talk with the NFB, a producer there, and they'd done a project on Instagram, which was almost like a photo essay. And sort of that probably had lodged it in my mind that this is a possible platform. And I just called Chris Hopkins. <laughs> I'm like, who's a great photographer in Melbourne? And Chris Hopkins, who's based in Melbourne, just jumped at it. And like, it was in the middle of the World Cup. So I think the World Cup was just starting. And so Chris like went there the next Saturday and shot a photograph of Eunice. It's not in here because it's before the project started, but it's on the World Game site. But Eunice and his friends like this with the World Cup and Australia getting a goal. So it just started that way. I mean, you can see here from the work up here, which I urge you all to check out if you're not an Instagram user, download it and, and check this out. So you, you use a, a really interesting mix around illustration and creative visuals. I know you use that in other parts of your work as well. How do you use that approach to make your storytelling kind of maybe more accessible than, than other mediums? I think working online and in this kind of world, it is multimedia and it can be anything, right? So it's about telling the story, but you can use whatever tools you like to tell that story because it's about engagement with the user in a one-to-one -one environment which is very interactive and a few years ago my illustration works really well <laughs> I just realized illustration worked really well and that's just before I did the boat and like the boat is one of the most successful projects we've done it's it's the highest numbers of engagement and I worked with Matt Huynh who's an incredible illustrator he's based in New York and yeah that's the boat so he's he's incredible yeah he's a fantastic artist and I worked with him for the boat and he particularly that story was very very prescient for him he felt it was his story it's part of if we do get to talk about voice I would talk about this project 
I really liked working with him. And so after with she called me Red, I knew with Instagram it's a visual project, photography, video, illustration, animation, whatever. It's all there. It's all for the taking. So with Instagram it really was because it was a world first documentary. We did it in real time. We got UGC from the Tankali camp, from Eunice's younger brother and other people at the camp. It could be anything and we were experimenting at what would work and what wouldn't work. Mm. Sometimes Maddie did some very dense animations when we were doing backstory because for the Rohingya, there was no photographs or visual documentation from Eunice's time with his grandmother, for example. His grandmother called him Red. That's how we got the name of the project. Leilayla was his name in Burmese. And, yeah, so sometimes Maddie would do very dense illustrations. Sometimes it would just be a simple line, you know, depending. And that was sort of part of the experimentation of the project because it hadn't been done before. We hadn't done it before. We realised video worked really well, which is nothing new to anybody. (laughs) So we added some more of the UGC in the story when we went back for part two, went back for another week. Yeah, so and it was lovely because Maddie was really open to it. Part of the thing is often I don't know what the project's going to be when we start, you know. It's part of that experimentation and working with people who are open to that is really helpful. That's exciting. You mentioned there around the real-time nature of this particular project. How did people engage with this, given that there was a sort of live element to it? And really you're trying something quite new and different on a, on a platform that most people use for selfies and filters. Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a branding platform, right? It started with advertising and this kind of thing in terms of the way it's used. But it can be used for anything. So I just like it's like a Trojan horse. You're, you're coming in with something that might be slightly different. But at the end of the day, you still need to connect with the audience. So, you know some things worked well and and some things don't necessarily work as well. Yeah, look, that was part of the experimentation. We were able to tell the story in a much more structured way, even though some of it was live, like when it was Eid and he went to mosque and then they were sort of butchering meat in the backyard and that's one of Chris's. He won a Nikon Walkley for his photographs. So that was really, really interesting and that was happening on the day and Maddie was doing some frames and then Chris would send some photographs and we were able to post it on the day. Similarly, some of the stories, well, the stories at the top were coming from the camp. So that would come at different times depending on when there was network. So people, we couldn't say we're going to post something at this time. We didn't have that capability. Sometimes we'd only get photographs, we wouldn't get video, there wasn't enough bandwidth to send video or this kind of thing so that is part of the experimentation brilliant lane if i can just move on to you so when we were discussing your walkley nomination that we're about to talk about it you, you sort of summed it up as saying well it was for a tweet which clearly there was a lot more to it than that so you're gonna to have to say a little bit more about that there's something quite deliciously lo-fi about your nomination but it was actually a really innovative way of bringing context and clarity to the the same-sex marriage debate if you haven't seen the same-sex marriage debate flowchart tweet stream then you're really missing out and you should check it out if i could ask you first how did it shape your storytelling on this topic and how did it really come about explain that to us I was nominated for. It is literally a tweet or rather a Twitter thread. What it is, is basically perhaps a better way of explaining it is how it came about. So I was in Parliament House the week where the postal survey on same-sex marriage was announced. So this is this really wild week where the government had tried to get its plebiscite through the Senate. Again, the Senate knocked it back and the government said, okay, fine, we're going to do a postal survey. And everyone was like, whoa, what? (laughs) And so there was a lot happening that week. There was a lot of confusion. No one really knew what was going to happen, myself included. And so I sort of grabbed a sheet of A4 paper and a pen and was like, right, I'm going to map this out. 
and started with where we were and then had parts coming down for, you know, the effort to get the plebiscite back through the Senate and what happened if that succeeded and what happened if that failed. And then if it failed, we'd go to a postal survey and then advocates had already announced that there was going to be a high court challenge to the postal survey. So what happened when that happened and whether it was knocked back or went forward. And then eventually the paths reached a couple of conclusions where same-sex marriage would be legalised and then several conclusions where it would continue to not be legal. And so I sort of mapped all this out and I was like, okay, like I think that works and took a photo of this piece of A4 paper and tweeted it out. And a lot of people sort of got around it and were like, oh, this is, you know, this is kind of funny. And I think quite inadvertently, it just mapped out how bizarre and politically and logistically twisted the scenario we were in had become. And it was, you know, it was very complicated. And it was also in some ways, it was just so absurd that it was almost funny, the sort of complex nature of it. As the postal survey played out, and we sort of went through all of these stages that were marked out on that flow chart, I started sort of just ticking them off as we went past it. And eventually, we sort of got through this tortured path that we navigated the plebiscite being knocked down in the Senate. The postal survey was announced. We went to the High Court. You know, that got knocked back. The postal survey happened. There was a yes vote. And then finally, down at the bottom, same-sex marriage was legalised. So the whole time I was sort of marking them off and tweeting them out in this thread. Do you have any other flowcharts in the works? <laughs> no, but occasionally people request them and I'm like, you know, I'm not a flowchart expert. This was just a one-time thing, guys. Like, oh, you're yeah, an award-nominated flowchart Although, um, yeah, one of BuzzFeed's international officers over in the UK actually recently did one on Brexit, which I think is way more complicated than the same-sex marriage postal survey was. I'm not even going to touch that. Obviously, Twitter is a is a essential tool of the modern journalist. But in this particular case, I mean, this is where this story developed for you. Did that change the way that you use that platform at all? And are you using that in a different way to sort of gather stories and tell stories now because of this? I use Twitter in a very different and distinct way during the postal survey for, I suppose, a couple of reasons. I essentially covered nothing but the postal survey for three months. So that was really my job for that time. And it was such a complex and evolving and just constantly in the news story that what I sort of did was separate my Twitter coverage to like the articles that I was writing, buzzfeed.com. And on my Twitter page, it was sort of like, I thought of it sort of for the nerds like me or for the people who were feeling, I suppose, quite anxious about the outcomes of the survey and really wanted to stay in the loop on sort of every minor development. So on Twitter, I would just be very much across everything happening that day. I would use it to ask people what they didn't understand so I could go and ask relevant politicians or people at the Australian Bureau of Statistics. I think I rang the Australian Bureau of Statistics media office literally every day for three months. Every time I rang, I was like, I'm so sorry. It's me again. So I did things like that. I would use Twitter to go through legislation, which I know sounds not very exciting and perhaps it wasn't very exciting, but there were sort of people out there who were actually quite keen to know how the various legislation that was being put forward would operate practically. So I would sort of use a Twitter thread to go through it and that was how I would understand it myself. Like I would read the bill slowly and sort of tweet out things as I understood them. So it's sort of a research tactic, but also got other people involved. And then, you know, there are people on Twitter who know much more about how the law works than I do. And so that was, you know, it was a two-way relationship. I suppose I tried to show my work 
working on Twitter in a lot of ways to sort of really engage with people. And then for articles, that would be, you know, for the general population who don't want to know every blow by blow thing. They just want to know what's happening, like who said what, where are we up to with the survey? So that's how I sort of treated Twitter and how I used it to, to feed into my sort of regular work. Did any politicians engage with you on Twitter during the process of the, the flowchart? Yes, actually. I think, yeah, I mean, uh, politicians quite regularly engaged. I remember because I, I tweeted pretty much the whole debate as it unfolded in the House. Well, actually not the whole debate because, you know, I went and ate something occasionally and I'd been tweeting it out in this long thread and then just as one Labor politician got up to speak, I sort of swapped shifts and my colleague, my former colleague now, Alice Workman, took over the tweeting um, and the politician later said to me, like, I was so disappointed. I was going to be next on your long thread and then you went off and, and I was like, God, I just, you know, went to the bathroom and had a sandwich like geez yeah so you know politicians did get involved but also regular people got involved I think a lot of people were quite interested in following it along. Lorena so you're obviously working at the Guardian the Deaths Inside project which you were, were part of won the innovation category at, at last year's Walkley Awards again if you haven't checked out this piece of work you really should it's it's a fascinating piece of work as I was recounting to you earlier we sat in our newsroom looking at it and marveling at it as we do often with with work that comes out of the guardian i guess if you could tell us a little bit about it but also i'd like you to talk to us about this is a project with a huge scope by the looks of it and i'm curious to know both how it came about but also what kind of skills are needed to deliver a project like that and how important is the collaboration particularly between journalists and storytellers and and technologists and designers and others who are involved it came about through my colleague, Calla Walquist, who'd been writing about deaths in custody for quite some time, and she was about to cover the inquest into Miss Do, a young Yamaji woman in West Australia who died of septicemia after being arrested for unpaid fines. And she wondered how many people have died in custody since the Royal Commission handed down its findings in 1991. And when she looked, she couldn't find that figure anywhere. So started to ponder why that was and what it said about Australia. So when I came on board as the Indigenous Affairs Editor, we wanted to take a good look at where those numbers had got to and how well state and territories and the federal government had monitored those statistics. And we found quite quickly that the reporting had had fallen away quite significantly in some states and certainly at the federal level quite severely. And we thought, well, there's something in this. And... We tried to work out ourselves how many people had died because we wanted to find out how the recommendations had been implemented. I mean, the Royal Commission had released its report in 1991, so we're talking, you know, 30 years down the track. And we wanted to measure... We wanted to look at why it was that Miss Do died. What are the procedures that should have been in place that could have prevented her from dying? And so when we started to look through all those coronial reports, we realised that we had, we had a mountain of work ahead of us, but we also had some really serious structural issues that were presenting themselves almost immediately. And so we dove in. And by dove in, I mean there was a small group of us, four of us, Nick, Callamy, Miles, and, yeah, five of us. And we ambitiously wanted to track every death in custody since the end of the Royal Commission. We soon realised that was not going to be possible. There were just too many. And some of the coronial reports didn't exist in electronic form. They were in literally in dusty filing cabinets all over the place. So we picked the last 10 years to give us a statistical snapshot and we tracked every death in custody. And then we looked focused at 
on the 147 deaths in custody that were of Indigenous people. When reading those coronial reports, which were overwhelming, I think, and very depressing reading, I don't think I was terribly fun to live with for a few months of last year, but we tracked a number of data points. So we worked out people's ages, their, their health status when they were arrested, their health status in prison, what they were there for, whether they were on remand or whether they'd been arrested. And we measured that for everybody. And so at the end of those few months, when we had finally got to the end of reading the coronial reports, then we started to crunch the numbers. And from the numbers came the storytelling. But from the very beginning, it was very important to me particularly that we were telling a story that was deeply traumatic to Indigenous communities. And so we wanted to do that in a very trauma-informed way. We didn't want to exacerbate the trauma of finding a loved one in this database without permission and without warning, of course. So where you see names and images in the database, they are of families who've given us express permission to do that. And we are still, this is a work in progress as well, so we are going to keep on with this database. We've had, since it was published in August last year, there's been at least four deaths in custody since then around the country. So we do feel like now that the data is there, we're going to keep building on it. So the storytelling came out of the numbers. So it was clear that the numbers were alarming and that there were systemic problems. But ultimately, we wanted to give you a sense of that every one of those little squares is a human life and every one of those little squares is loved and missed. And it didn't matter in the end how they ended up in prison. The state had a responsibility to them. And so we wanted to honour their lives in the right way. We also wanted to make sure that, you know, we were quite clear-eyed about this. This is unpleasant news. People are going to find this challenging. And so we had to work very carefully with families and with families' representatives to make sure that we were maintaining the integrity of the project as well as maintaining the privacy of the families and, of course, their victims where they were victims. And so that was really the main approach. We're a small team and... Everyone who worked on it was really passionate about it. So we had a kind of common goal. We we believed very strongly in what we were doing and we, we all agreed that it should be done sensitively and carefully and that that took time. And I have to thank our editor, Lenore Taylor, for giving us the time because as news journalists, this is such a luxury to be able to immerse yourself in a project like this and to be given the go-ahead to do that was marvellous. So, and the other thing we did was we used a template that we had used in the past, and I don't know if anyone's seen the Nauru files before. We experimented with different ways of displaying this data because we were mindful that these were human lives. Originally, we'd been inspired the US Guardian's face wall that they did around extrajudicial killings by police. And I don't know if some of you have seen that. It's quite extraordinary. I encourage you to go check it out. That was in our thinking originally. That was what we were going to do. But but as time progressed, we realised there were so many people that we couldn't do justice to that. And we didn't, we weren't able to contact every single family who were, had a loved one on the database before we published. So we used the Nauru Files template because that enabled us to give you not just a snapshot of that person, but some details around them and to link you to other information about the case. So in a way we wanted to produce news content but also to produce a resource for families, for the general community, for professionals, for lawyers. We're sort of talking to a number of people about how they might continue to look after the database when we're done. And you know obviously this is a sensitive topic. How much did your background inform the way that you approached this particular piece of work? 
At first, I was nervous about the idea of even beginning the work because it is so distressing to Aboriginal communities and I didn't want to be that person that's always talking about the sad things and the painful things. So why I thought it was important was because we were telling the stories of those people and their loved ones who were left behind because they've done nothing wrong. They've suddenly lost a person in custody and have to deal with the enormitude of that, not just in grieving personally but in dealing with a system they don't understand and dealing with a a coronial process that was complex and expensive and the waiting that it took was really a testament to their fortitude. So it was very important to me that we do that in a careful way, in a trauma-informed way and When we kind of cracked the formula of how we might display that information in the database, I felt much more confident about going ahead because I thought we'd managed to find a way. The other thing we did was we made it an opt-in process. So we gave a warning at the start. Be warned, there's some strong language in here. There's some challenging themes. So we gave people the option and put a warning up front. And just touching on the how you settled on the visual approach here, both making it a compelling experience making it an easy I mean I think all of your projects have this in common where you take very complicated and big stories and distill them into something quite easy to digest how much iteration was involved in that how many sort of goes did you guys have at getting it before you were happy with it quite a few so we were as I said we started out with an idea in mind of how we might display the data and ended up with something quite different but something that as we shared it with people and, and lots of different people, not just, you know, in the Indigenous communities, but all sorts of users, we refined it and got to a point where we thought we, we were happy with the way that we'd done it. Yes, I know how, I know how that feels. <laughs> <laughs> you touched on it there as well, and I think it's probably a question for all three of you. It requires really bold editors now these days to allow busy news journalists to invest large amounts of time in projects like this. I mean, how in your newsrooms, and obviously you've had a lot of experience in different newsrooms, how much appetite is there for that, do you think, these days? I think there's an appetite for it. I just think people are hamstrung by the daily news cycle, and I don't mean that in a negative way because that's our bread and butter. But the idea that you could devote months of your time to a project like this is quite a luxury, as I said. So you do need a bold editor. You need thinking that is experimental, like Kylie's talking about, And also I think we need to tapping into audiences and making sure that we go where they are. So one of the important things about this project was to make it mobile friendly. So you can use it quite easily on a phone because so many, almost more than half our users, close to 80%, I think, to be honest, are mobile users. And so we're always thinking of new ways to maintain that connection. I just forgot, I should have answered the first part of your question. The artist we used, her name is Charlotte Allingham, and she has a pretty strong Instagram following. In fact, that's where I found her. She's a very talented young Wiradjuri artist based in Melbourne. And so when I briefed her on what we wanted to do, she was quite apprehensive, as I was when we first discussed the idea. But when I started to talk to her about what we wanted to do and the way we wanted to do it, she really understood. And we we asked her to produce us a kind of overarching image, which is very difficult, really, given the subject matter. And also some ways of signifying the people in the database so that those little squares, when you see the pop-up on the side, they're either male, female or gender-neutral images. And so she spent a lot of time and put a lot of thought into how she might illustrate that. So there's the idea of the song line in the sort of main main image, but there are also little feathers in there that you see that are written in chalk on a chalkboard. So there's a, 
the impermanence of it all, the idea that this person, you know, you know, making marks on the prison, well, all those things are in there, I think, and I think she did a beautiful job. She did. It looks fabulous. Thanks for the overview, guys, on, on your projects. Some three outstanding pieces of work there. I think you'll all agree. I think if I can just ask you some general questions now, one of the things that I find interesting about how we all interact with technology these days is there's so many different touch points that we have digitally every day. I'm interested in, from all of you really, in, in terms of how as storytellers do you use new platforms to connect with communities and audiences that might not ordinarily have a regular news gateway that they use? Carly, if you want to go first with that one. I think we've talked for a long time now about how do you take stories to where people are and so that's something that myself and also the Digital Creative Labs, they're doing sort of AR pieces as installation piece. That's their latest one. Instagram. It's so funny, like, that that you have to, when you're building now, obviously you have to build for mobile and has to go out at the same time. But we've had times where maybe a project didn't go, wasn't mobile ready and it goes out as a desktop experience and you can't engage with it when it's on Twitter. You know, so it's those kind of thinking that's constantly changing and constantly updating. How heavy is a project? A lot of our projects have been really quite video heavy so our most recent project's called Missing which is a fantastic I mean it's an incredible story it was done to honour Jimmy Janes and Pitanjara Tracker and his relative Daniel Mudo and it's a really beautiful project but it's a complete mobile experience that differs from the website experience and yeah you learn from like SBS On Demand which can play out a different platform so definitely thinking about that thinking about social media thinking about how people consume media in different environments it's really important and it also then can feed back onto the project so it becomes this loop so you're not just trying to project one idea of how you tell a story across all platforms you definitely that has to come into the thinking from the get-go and lane obviously your audience is super digital native do you approach how you guys tell stories and how you get your stories out in different ways because of that, do you think? I mean, BuzzFeed's been a leader in that area, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what Lorena said earlier about the vast majority of our readers being on mobile is something we're thinking about all the time. So, yeah, content that works well on mobile is just sort of a given. What I think BuzzFeed has always been at the forefront of is being really experimental with pushing out stories on different digital platforms and so very obvious ones like you go to Facebook to find sort of mass audiences on a platform like Twitter you have a slightly different approach because there's a different group of people there it can be sort of a smaller but perhaps more highly engaged group of people there's a lot of other journalists on Twitter there's a lot of sort of decision makers and, and people in power on Twitter then you've got platforms like Instagram which is another sort of mass audience place but it's presented in a very different way to Facebook you've got to think very visually there places like snapchat is where you go to find sort of really young people i'm not on snapchat i'm too old for snapchat (laughs) i should be on snapchat but yeah we we think very deeply about which platforms we use and why we use them and i should also say that that's not something that that's not part of the business that i suppose i'm deeply involved in as a reporter we have news in buzzfeed they're called news curation team and they're the the real experts about sort of where to put stuff out and the best format to put it out in but it's definitely something that we think about all the time I mean, it's kind of, Lorraine, if I can turn to you, it's it's a real battle for attention these days in terms of we've all touched on increasing use of mobile as a media consumption device. Obviously, use cases in those times, we don't have much time, we're short of attention. How do we, or how do you approach telling a big story, such as some of the projects you've been involved in on, on a small screen with an audience that perhaps is you're competing with a lot of other things for their attention? 
That's the million dollar question. Hoping you're going to answer <laughs> we it. Have, <laughs> we, have, we have people who spend their whole day thinking about these things. But I think going to where people are, it's a challenge, but it's really the only way forward. We think very deeply about when you tell a story, ultimately you're telling a story. You are telling a story to one other person. So that's the fundamental trick of every story. So then you're looking at what aspect of the story suits the platform so you might have a fantastically big complex story so the Nauru files or deaths inside as an example we thought about okay well which bit is audio which bit is video which bit is a map maybe this bit is for instagram so yeah that's that's very much how we operate we think at the planning stage at the beginning when we're making when we're canvassing the idea we're always thinking about which bit of the idea lives on which platform and The great joy of being able to use this multi-platform world that we live in is that there is, even though there's there's a lot of shouting on social media, there is also a place for nuance. And I'm really hopeful that, I mean, some of the, the beautiful storytelling that's being done on Instagram is a good example of that, that, you know, you can find those things if you look. And find making it discoverable to people is always a challenge because I think ultimately, as all the app developers will tell you, your main competition for audience is sleep. So, you know, once someone's on their phone, there's a million things you can do on your phone and people are spending a lot of money on trying to keep you on the phone. So in that, it's a very competitive world. But I think ultimately a good human story well told will win every time. So you're saying we should invest in sleep apps? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> It'll get more sleep. Yeah, no, definitely. Kylie, we touched on this earlier, but we're seeing voice emerge as an interesting kind of storytelling medium, which is really an old storytelling medium from the perspective of obviously spoken word, but also radio. But we've seen a resurgence in that. What experiences have you had in voice storytelling and, and, and also kind of, you know, the, the devices that that might start to be happening on, such as smart speakers and so forth? It's sort of a brave new world, right? So I'm interested in technologies that work together with other platforms that are voice technology and the BBC did an Alexa project recently and voice is something that's sort of interesting. We did a project called My Grandmother's Lingo, which was voice-activated technology. And ALC, of course, which is 68 Languages, is a radio radio programs and they have their podcasts are going through the roof. So, And podcasts generally too. I mean, I think that the way we think about storytelling and maybe audio is sort of like an essence of a storytelling broken down without all the other elements is really interesting and how people use voice-activated technologies constantly, like more and more in our lives. You know, you've got two-year-old kids saying, OK, Google, play, please. You know, it's like that's part of the way in which we're starting to work together. And I think that's something that's interesting in this sort of work because you look and see what technologies are out there and how they can be integrated with existing technologies and where there's a place for story in there or not. So it's a constant question. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's my answer. <laughs> Great answer. So I'm just going to, I think one of the, what we're hearing tonight and certainly what my observations have been is that, you know, we've got some really cutting edge digital storytelling in Australia. I think we're, we're pushing the boundaries in the types of stories we're telling here. But I'd like to ask, I was going to start with you, Lane. I'd love to know who you admire in this space and, and both locally but overseas, whose stories do you look at and just go, oh, I wish I'd done that? Well, a lot of the guardians, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the work they do is really good. I think one thing that is really sort of has become apparent in recent years is that people really like stuff that is really deeply reported and really well resourced. And I think there's this sort of myth that circulates in discussions around journalism that people want 
cheap content and clickbait, which is a controversial term often misused, which I won't go into. But And that's actually not true. People do want stuff that is really deeply reported and it is actually smart for newsrooms to invest in that sort of journalism. So really anywhere that is making such a concerted effort to do big projects like Deaths Inside and and to collate information, either getting new information or getting information that is out there in its various reports and statements and putting it together in a way that is digestible, I think is really admirable. In terms of overseas... I really like what Slate does. I think they have a really good online voice in the terms of the way they write and I think that they integrate their podcasts really well into their written content and then also the podcasts just stand alone by themselves as as really good pieces of journalism or cultural commentary or, or whatever they are. I think Slate has a really good mix of just how to be an online news outlet at the moment. Right. Lorena, who do you admire? Yes, I'm rapidly thinking of that. Oh, there's a couple of people that jump out. One is Francesca Panetti, who we were talking about earlier, who works for The Guardian UK, who did an incredible project. She loves she loves to experiment, so she was way ahead of the curve on this one. It was called Six by Nine, and it was a, a project about solitary confinement and its impact on people who find themselves there. And so it's a it's kind of like a, it was a VR experience, but there was audio and you could move your phone or your screen around to to get view the contents of your cell and as you moved text would pop up and give you information there was a there were a million there were there was a face wall in that too there were a million different ways to experience that form of storytelling and the other one I love is the New York Times is Caliphate I'm a huge fan and not just the podcast which was extraordinary but the the online journalism of Caliphate was great the pictures were really good Yeah, I mean, in what area, you know, it's like there's just people and having access to all of these different pieces of content and creative makers is just incredible. So I sort of find whether it's like Roxane Gay writing or whether it's the NFB, National Film Board of Canada, who are probably most aligned to us in terms of having done this sort of work and continually put money into getting Canadian artists and telling their stories digitally. They've got a really incredible back catalogue or sort of the way in which you go to South by Southwest and they've got the combination of different technologies and stories and even branded organisations coming together. And then just some of the stuff that Netflix is doing is inspiring me at the moment. Russian Doll just inspired me. I thought it was amazing. So, yeah, I think just risk takers, like people who are allowing and, and whether that be even the New York Times who put in a lot of money and time into the formats and their templates. So just like slight tweaks and iterations based on users is really, really interesting. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there at the moment. I mean, there's so much stuff, right? So it's great to just kind of find them. And, and when you do find someone that really speaks to you, it's, it's fantastic because it just opens up a whole new world. That was a great answer. And with that, we're going to conclude. I think we've had some fantastic insights from three very, very talented storytellers. So please join me in thanking Lane and Kylie and Lorena. to the Walkley Talks podcast with me, Claire Fletcher. You can find links to all the stories mentioned in this discussion in our show notes. Sign up to our newsletter at walkleys.com slash subscribe and you'll be the first to learn about our new episodes, events and other opportunities. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Walkley Talks, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate us. This podcast is produced by Kevin Suarez with help from the 2SER Studios in Sydney, Australia. Thank you.